0: Hello, hello. This is the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molyneux. Our show is dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas of 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. Also addressed our issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and the universal basic income to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Today, It is a roundtable of sorts. I am joined by Kid R. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. And what is on the uh, agenda? Connecticut.
1: Connecticut. uh,
0: I don't know a lot about Connecticut.
1: Connecticut is on the table.
0: Connecticut is on the table. You are from Connecticut. You know more about Connecticut than I
1: do. You can fit it on the table because it's pretty small.
0: It is is a fairly small state. Uh, So what is notable about Connecticut? Let's say someone has never heard about Connecticut. How do you pitch them on it?
1: Well, what do people think of when they think of Connecticut? Why don't you tell me?
0: I th- that's a good question. I think of people who live outside of New York hmm. and 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 commute into New York City. I think uh, I personally know it as a place I drove through on the way to uh, on the way to get to Boston. There we go. That's yeah. the only time I've ever been in Connecticut. Uh, Hartford Whalers. I think of that great logo. I uh, this is something I they're didn't... not
1: around anymore.
0: No, they they yeah. they left a number of years ago. Right. Uh, one thing uh, I did not realize until recently, it is uh, New Haven pizza is is a f- is a I guess famous form of pizza that I've never had. Uh, yeah, you...
1: I I actually haven't had much of it either. I'm not from the New Haven part of uh, the state, but yeah, it's supposedly the best pizza in the in the country.
0: Some speak of it highly. Um, there's a lot of pizza scenes, a lot of pizza scenes out there. Uh, how far is New Haven from Hartford?
1: Uh, I want to say about an hour, maybe a a little more than an hour.
0: Are there any other cities I should care about, or is it easy just to simplify? You have those two cities.
1: there's Hartford, there's New Haven, there's Bridgeport. I've heard uh, of it. There's uh, New London, there's uh, New Britain, uh, and then there's like Stamford, which is- Oh, I know Stamford. Yeah, there's Stamford. Yeah. Um, And there there, there are other- uh, Cities out there worth mentioning too. They, that's the thing about Connecticut is uh, there are a lot of cities. Each of them, like Waterbury, Danbury, these are other pretty big kind of yeah uh, big cities. And they're names you know. They're names you know, and they're and I would say they each have their own unique personality. Uh, so you know, in a place like California, you got to drive, you know, like a eh, pretty at least. Well, these are old cities too. These are yeah. cities that go back centuries.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so you actually first proposed, let's talk about Connecticut, and yes. just linked a bunch of, you know, articles about what's going on in Connecticut, and uh, things are pretty dire in some ways, especially, you know, kind of the Hartford scene. Uh, and then on top of it, uh, I noted that, hey, this is, you know, we talked about the land value tax, you know, speak of the devil, some of that talk is going on in, in, in Hartford. So it's that's one thing we can touch on here. But in general... Uh, There's a lot of stories about depressed economies and things just going bad in in cities. And it sounds like,
1: is it the same old story in Connecticut? What do you think is notable about it? I would say uh, the story that we generally see around the country where, or at least least like think of Rust Belt America, right? The stories that we've heard coming out of Rust Belt are about, you know— jobs leaving these urban areas and...
0: Um, or disappearing, manufacturing jobs that just don't really just, need people anymore.
1: Right. So basically you end up with these, again, These yeah, these, so these depressed sort of urban regions uh, leads to a lot of unemployment, poverty, just uh, urban blight, uh, and just kind of squalor.
0: Uh, well, it's a city that has an industry. The industry disappears, and they just... Uh, they, they don't adjust. They don't really, you know, they don't become a new kind of city. A lot of them just kind of just start dying.
1: Right. And so this phenomenon is also, I think, everywhere uh, it comes hand in hand with the like racial segregation. So you see, you know, the city cores tend to be more African-American, Hispanic. Well,
0: You see you so at certain times in history the idea of white flight, Yeah, as, especially when, I mean, I think at a certain time in history, when you gave people cars and you had, like, a bunch of new suburbs they could move into, what do you know? All the well-to-do whites move out, and then who's stuck in the inner city? It's the people who really can't get out. And that, that was something that happened, and, you know, you see decades on, a lot of these cities... Uh, you know, people have started to come back, and now it's called gentrification. You know, it's kind of a boom-bust cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's...
1: Right. So the process of people leaving the cities, say, in the 70s and the in the 80s because the cities were... 50s, 60s, 70s. 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. So a lot of that, some of that was driven by, oh, let's move on. You know, we can afford this big house and we can get back to work in the city because, you know, we have our cars now. Uh, but then, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was also people were afraid of the cities. Uh, it was dangerous.
0: Well, you have you kind of like a deflationary cycle. When you start to, when the place starts to get worse, you start to have a lack of funding, and then suddenly you have lack of basic services. Then you start to have vacancies, and then you start just having blight. mm -hmm. And then when things get bad, that drives it to get worse. You don't really hit a floor and say, "Okay, let's stabilize and we ramp back up." In fact, the kind of floor drops out, and things get worse and worse and worse. That's kind of the the tragedy of cities.
1: So, right. So you would see, you'll see that in Connecticut. You'll see that being the case in many of these big cities that we, we just mentioned, so Hartford, Bridgeport, and, uh, New Haven. So which which Settero, big city
0: were you closest to? Personally? I was
1: closer to Hartford. Okay. Um, and how often do you go to Hartford growing up? Not much. Okay. Uh, but I mean, so you know, you, when I asked you know what do you think of Connecticut, you said, oh, I think of all the fancy commuters uh, from New York, Uh, you know, the fancy people who work in Manhattan, but, you know, don't want to live in Manhattan for various reasons, so they have their big houses in Connecticut. So you're, you're used to thinking of wealth when you think of Connecticut. So although this sort of problem of just, you know, urban degradation has cropped up in many different parts of the country, what makes... Connecticut's problem, especially interesting, is that it's a very rich state, and you still have uh, these kind of crumbling cities, uh, and so a lot of times they're just a few miles away from some of the you know wealthiest people on the planet.
0: So, so reading through these articles, I kind of get maybe a narrative of what happened to Connecticut through much of the last half a century. Is it not only was a you know kind of a bunch of you know, commuter towns, bedroom communities, it also kind of became a suburban state, you know, including industry. Mm-hmm. A lot of kind of suburban office parks took a lot of industries away from uh, New York City, for instance, and other yes. places. Yes. And uh, through a bunch of kind of, you know, sweetheart deals and whatnot, they basically brought a, you know, a lot of industry and economy to the, the suburb types of, uh, of Connecticut. The cities tended to kind of get ignored, that's what it seems like they were kind of an afterthought but they kind of said let's grow this place like the suburbs this is and that seemed to be the strategy is that is
1: that yeah yeah absolutely and that, so you know you see these suburban like office parks and stuff i mean and and the reason the reasoning behind that is that you know these people that have now moved out to the suburbs i mean they can just work there too you know um, saves them ever having to go to the cities at all uh, so yeah yeah so the, that's And in a way, that's what made Connecticut uh, Connecticut. I mean, it was, you know, these people fleeing New York City, really, uh, which ended up bringing a lot of wealth into the state. So one big thing,
0: just decline, you say decline in, you know, the downtown areas, but just overall, I believe, I think this was the entire state of Connecticut, 23% uh, uh, loss of population from 1960 to 2000. That's pretty significant.
1: Yes. So people have been leaving. Uh, Usually what happens is, uh, you know, if you're uh, some of the the smartest, most talented kids, uh, you know, they end up going to college somewhere that's not in the state. We don't have I mean, we we do have quite a few colleges in the state. I mean, Yale is in New Haven and, you know, you have Trinity College in Hartford and it's not like there's nothing going on. But, you know, most of the time people will go to college, you know, say maybe in New York City, maybe near D.C., maybe near Boston, maybe on the West Coast, etc. And then, you know, people not many people are enticed to come back. I mean, what is going on in Hartford right now? Not much.
0: So, I mean, so I guess if you look at it in a certain way, Connecticut is the story of a declining population. And when this happened, the finances— really ceased to really work out very well. Uh, you send into the sea, the population go down, there's quite a lot of wealth that remains there, quite a lot of poverty that's there, and growth has become stagnant and they uh, they're kind of suffering to just kind of figure out how they are funding everything. That seems to be an ongoing story of just financial woes at least through the cities
1: here. Right. And a lot of the you know the the public funds for things a large chunk of that naturally comes from people who work in New York in the finance industry. So that means during a financial crash, you know, we had one of those recently. Um, not only does the financial industry suffer, but so do, you know, the tax receipts uh, for the state of Connecticut. Uh, so obviously the the people who, and we know about this, the story of the, the, you know, the great recovery and how it's been somewhat unequal. So the people who... Sort of, sort of suffered in their hedge funds, etc those people have pretty much gotten back to where they were, if not doing better than where they were before, before the crisis. That ha- hasn't been the case for everyone else. And, and like we were saying, people are leaving and the, the jobs that are available, like, so, so the job gains that you have seen are more low skilled, you know, so people like caregivers and, uh, you know, th- that level of job. And it's the kind of
0: jobs that you, know, you always tend to get, even in the depressed economy, things like healthcare and stuff, because, you know, you don't only really have to have a burgeoning economy. There's always going to be a need for caregivers, for instance. Caregivers
1: and, like, retail salespeople and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but you see the problem there, right? So now the new jobs are low wage, um, but yet we need, you know, it's a high-tax state. So what happens to your budget well it gets well, is, kind of squeezed
0: is it a, i mean, it's a, it sounds like the tax situation they give a lot of you know subsidies for tax major
1: industries tax breaks to businesses in as sort of enticement to make them stay yeah but it doesn't seem to be working um and well it perhaps it, it may have worked maybe 30 40 years ago but at that time you know they also had those companies had other reasons for wanting to come uh, not just the, the taxes, and so some some major uh, corporations have have announced that they're going to be leaving Connecticut. So, Aetna, which is a health insurance company, actually they they probably do more than just health health insurance, but it's an insurance company. and It's been it's founded in Hartford over 150 years ago, I believe, and um, they're leaving. Uh, and where are they going? They're going, I believe, to New York City, and and. Uh, even though that they were getting pretty preferential taxes? Yeah, I'm sure they're getting very, very nice taxes, but they're going to move to New York City because that's where the talented people are. Yeah. And uh, they want those people... They uh, want to be part of a vibrant economy. Yeah. That's, so that's a whole... General Electric had its headquarters in Fairfield County. They also announced, I think, a couple of years ago, that they were going to leave and go to Boston. And many people have pointed out that, you know, if it really was just people, you know... Afraid of the high taxes or angry about the high taxes in Connecticut, it doesn't really make sense to go to New York City, where they also have pretty high taxes, or to Massachusetts. Um, does, does does Connecticut does it seem to have a similar story to kind of the Grover
0: Norquist utopia of Kansas? It says, I guarantee Kansas can have the best economy in the world. They're going to cut all their taxes. Everyone's going to want to go there to run their businesses, and then no one really did. Uh, I mean, is, is it similar in that kind of way, or is there many differences you can?
1: Well, I mean, for a long time, people actually did want to live in Connecticut. I mean, some uh, people still do. I mean, it's... I, and yes, but like people were moving there and stuff. Uh, I don't know if that was ever the case with Kansas. <laughs> um, I mean, I think this Which is... suggests that there might be more to getting people to move into your state than just lowering you know, their tax burden.
0: Certainly. I mean, I think that's... There's not a whole lot I can say that I know definitively about uh, what makes economies... Flourish and grow and be incubated. I think all I know is it's not simple. And I think the idea that if you just take an empty space, lower the tax burden on it, that suddenly people come in, and start partying—I don't think that's true at all. I think it's—it's—it's got
1: to be a party that is worth going to.
0: It's a magic thing that when when you have a, you know, a city in a place, and you know, people who are urbanists have tended to say, you know, its it's cities are where. You have the economic powerhouses of, of that's where innovation and collaboration happen. Uh, one one of the articles it says here: Connecticut's real problem. It took a kind of middle road. It didn't have the sunny days of Arizona, the regulatory nonchalance of Alabama, or the environmental degradation of Louisiana. But it also doesn't have a Boston, a Seattle, or a Minneapolis. Yeah. And right now, I guess you talk about where do people want to be? There is, for whatever reason, people do like cities that offer people stuff. Uh, you know, a couple decades ago, I mean, it was less the case. Maybe because most of our cities were experiencing the kind of bust times of white flight and such. But I mean, there's always, you know, there's always been an attraction to cities. That's where people, you know, think about. Uh, and Connecticut doesn't really have that same kind of draw. Hartford is. It seems to be, uh, you know, it's a minor city. And uh, from hearing all these talks, it seems to be mostly filled with vacant parking lots.
1: Well, yeah, in, in downtown Hartford, there are some there's parking lots, and you know there may be reasons for that uh, based on the incentives that. Well, one of the people was
0: saying like the overall plan is you know Connecticut is suburban. If you're going to people to go downtown, there's got to be a lot of parking. was <laughs> like the, yeah yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of say there should be you know kind of a. You know, an actual hub, the city should be self-sustaining. It should be actually its own residents power it. That's the dream. Uh, but when it's, you know, bus time, who knows? And uh, if you're trying to make it just a destination, it kind of is building your downtown like a, you know, a, a shopping mall or something. Go out and drive over to it and park and, you know, and you see that, you know, we have boom
1: times bus times with our malls. You see dead malls across the country. So here, it as a sort of maybe... I don't know, just something, just a nice bedtime story. Sometimes I'll say to myself, maybe this is just a very temporary. Maybe all these people who are now flocking to cities, it's just a matter of years before they realize, hey, I really want to buy a house. I really want to, like, do the whole, like, white picket fence thing. Where can I go uh, and get that? Oh, here's Connecticut, and uh, everyone will return, and things—the the suburbs will be able to be suburbs again. And because the suburbs will be there and there will be wealth in the suburbs, uh, they'll, I guess, hopefully rejuvenate the neighboring cities.
0: There is there's a kind of narrative that I, I think holds a lot of water for me. Uh, this is something – I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Chuck Marone and his Enterprise of Strong Towns. It's a series of, like, essays he writes, and it's a blog. Uh, but he has a thing he's coined, the Suburban Ponzi Scheme. which he's Suburban
1: been... Ponzi Scheme. What is that?
0: It's it's a basic idea that if you look at like downtown financing, it's always been kind of a model that makes sense. You know, people live downtown, um, and it more or less works in a steady state. It pays for itself. You could say it could pay for itself in more efficient ways, but you know, downtowns have had the density and kind of ongoing, you know, work on its infrastructure to be self-sustaining. Through, you know, especially the you know the last half of the twentieth century, sub suburbs have tended to be. More of, let's build infrastructure all at once. People buy into it with like a one-time ownership fee, and there's never really been a strategy. What happens when the original infrastructure wears out and needs to be replaced? There's really no kind of financing. The, uh, you know, all the all the tax receipts and everything just pay for sustaining costs. And how are you going to pay for the next generation of the suburbs? And they, at a certain level, are saying this isn't really land that the first—no one was living here before it. A lot of these only exist because people kind of, you know, wanted this once upon a time. When it wears out, it's going to have negative equity. You're going to have basically a place it costs more to fix than to live in, and people are just going to abandon it. And when you see, like, you know, extreme example would be the suburbs on the outside of Detroit. When those started to be valued less— they just tend to be abandoned, and are we going to see this as like the next flight of people with suburbs and no one really wants anymore are just going to start being abandoned and have you know, where negative those value? Where,
1: the, where are those people fleeing to though? You well, can't flee th- to the cities.
0: <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, if you imagine that if, if there was more you know a capacity for cities to take them in, I think a lot more people would be doing it. Uh, but you know, and also people talk about you know values. A lot of people value this is my city. I am going to stay here. And, yeah, I mean, just, you know, the idea of your community and you fighting for it, that's, a, that's an idea that resonates with a lot of people. Um, it's kind of the idea that there's people who, you know, want to be mobile and kind of, you know, the strivers, and some people are more community-minded.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, that, that would be great, right? I mean, as I said, you know, there there is a kind of like, sort of like a, a brain drain of sorts in Connecticut where... Some of the most talented people are leaving the state. Yeah, uh, and it—I mean, as nice as what you just said is—I mean, it seems like money speaks a little bit louder than uh, this uh, sense of, "Oh, I, I need to help build my community, and you know where I'm from matters." And
0: it was coined, uh, you know, back row kids and front row kids. Uh,
1: back row kids and front row kids.
0: It's the idea, yeah, Chris Arnande, or Arnade, I'm not sure. I've only seen his name written a million times. But, yeah, he kind of writes about, you know, a big thing you're seeing is cities where all the front row kids, the kids who really strived, have left, and you only have the back row kids. Yeah. And and the cities are struggling a lot of times. But it's people who feel they have a strong sense of identity in, in their community, and it's just kind of shrinking. It's never been fun and it is now seems worse than ever. It's not nice to be in a shrinking city, <laughs> and I think if you look at the kinetic experience, it seems like a lot of the misery we're seeing is, by and large, there's not many f- sure rules. But man, it seems that we don't really have, we don't really have good plans to live in a shrinking place.
1: What is the right way to deal with that phenomenon, though? I mean, I'd say maybe in a, in a
0: perfect world, in your idea of a utopia. You kind of have you know a city that has a certain footprint. When it shrinks, you kind of you know tighten your belt a bit and it moves towards the center. You kind of may put some stuff back into green space or something, and then it's still functional. I think when it doesn't work as well, you see something more like Detroit, where it suddenly shrinks, you know throughout a lot of places, it becomes Swiss cheese and just kind of falls apart. It doesn't really have a strong core anymore. It just seems to have a lot of, you know, patchwork blighted areas. I think that's the idea of you have kind of sustainable dense growth would be the way you grow, but instead we tend to sprawl. And to a first approximation, it works. I mean, you could say it's a Ponzi scheme, it's not sustainable, but, you know, it in practice, it's worked well for people. Uh, and I think it really, you only have to pay the piper when it shrinks and then it really sucks. I'm not really sure this applies to the Connecticut experience. Does any of that seem to apply to the suburbs you see there or?
1: Well, I was say the suburbs are it's the cities really yeah. where, where the trouble is.
0: So when the population is declining overall,
1: do you think it's really sucking out of the cities? Uh, I think, no, I think it's probably, it's probably both. Uh, I think people more, it's, it's more that people aren't staying in the suburbs, you know, the third, you know, 20 and 30 somethings would rather not be in the state. Um, and that's, that's a problem, that I, and I don't know how to fix it. And you know, you definitely notice that when you go out in Hartford or something. You go to see a show in downtown Hartford. It, I mean, the audience, most of the audience has gray hair.
0: Um, I mean, it's it's no one's real business to tell people what they should want. If people want cities, they want cities. I mean, and you can say a lot of it might do with kind of how industries work. You know, 100-something years ago, a lot more people lived in rural areas. And then this shifted to cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think if you are saying that there's more of a shift to actual cities because that tends to be how industry works and maybe just how transient tastes are, um, I mean, it seems like it's a generalization. Millennials don't like white picket fences. Maybe that will change. Uh, but I think certainly there's a kind of uh, – there is kind of a feeling like the the suburbs we want to move to are kind of running out and like you're not going to be able to get into the suburb you want. Right. So, I mean, there's kind of an idea that when you drive out in this whole, you know, sprawling out, you're kind of claiming spots, and at a certain rate, it kind of blocks out. Because people want suburbs, but they don't want like a random suburb in the middle of a field in Nebraska. They want a suburb outside a city, and there's a limited amount of space outside a city for people to move to in that sense.
1: So, what's, I mean, what this may, may not necessarily concern Connecticut, but like, what is going to happen when the millennials, us, who love cities, uh, you know, what's going to happen, like, 10 years from, where are we going to go? Or are we just going to raise families in cities, or are we, like, what? what's going to happen? There's a kind of, hey, what, hey,
0: are we going to just generalize the I kind of, try- the, 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 the just-so stories with the millennials? Because I think a big story is they want things... They realize that the dream wasn't open to them. They have realized, hey, I'm never going to have that same kind of. Well, first you have to be prudent with your money. And then you get right. the right kind of house. Then you move out, and then you do all this. And they feel like, well, that's not happening for me. I might as well just kind of, you know, enjoy myself. And that's the whole stereotype of, you know, millennials are eating their avocado toast instead of saving up for their for their home. And I think to a certain extent, it's the people who are saying that's dumb of them don't really look at the finances and say, well, I mean, this is a kind of dumb use of their money uh, for what they're going to get. And then, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there is a kind of sense of hopelessness. And I think you see like the general embrace of more or less leftist movements, especially in cities. I think a big part of it saying that, you know, the standard model of, you know, how you Become a prudent middle class person just doesn't work in this economy anymore. So what is what is what is that new model? I
1: think I don't think anyone knows, but I think there's a there's there's a discontented class. Certainly. Right now there doesn't there doesn't seem to be any kind of model or framework that people are just kind of scraping by. It seems.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I, here in California. I think people definitely say the new model is feudalism. It's back, baby. People love it. Feudalism Feudalism's back. There's the people who got the estates and there's the people who, you know, pay them dues. And if you're not one, well, it's your bad luck not to be born into it or come here
1: decades so what, ago. So why did feudalism end? Why did feudalism end? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think— Or how did it end, perhaps?
0: I mean, there's—over time, there's always been more and more, uh, you know, rights for landowners. Sometimes you would see democratic— uh, fighting back for example you'd not have to be a landowner to vote anymore that was a that was a win against feudalism um, i think people say one of the best things that that kind of helped fight back in feudalism is the frontier when you say hey i don't got to be your serf anymore I can just move out and stake my own claim people say the American frontier was kind of a balancing force against that and that's how you know a lot of middle class wealth has been generated here for instance and how we taken on a lot of immigrants
1: and kind of we have been their outlet too I don't know I mean that's that's one kind of pat story is that I don't know if that does that work is that so feudalism ends in Europe because the American frontier exists uh i I think
0: I think there's a lot of things I mean it's it it has gone hand in hand with just general moves for fairness you mm-hmm. know I mean it's you know the uh, idea of of freeing your serfs and freeing your slaves came within several you know generations and centuries of each other. Centuries, I guess. Well, I mean, Russia, closer than others, but yeah. Uh, But yeah, kind of... Okay, but I guess back to Connecticut, and just like tax things, I think a, a major theme is just, you know, what you tax should be more or less proportioned to how likely they are to fly away from you. And it sounds like it's the things that Connecticut has tended to value, it seems, are maybe they just will up and leave and... I guess that's that's maybe the idea of why you really should be investing in cities that work because when you have a money maker in the form of a, of a city that people want to be part of, that's going to continue to make money for you whereas if you if your you know idea of capital are suburban office parks and suburbs that no one really loves but they you know work more or less, but they'll leave because they don't you know whatever yeah I think that's the kind of places that dry up yeah. I mean, I think, like, a place like San Francisco, it's going to
1: exist. But to go back—so tie that back to what you just said about taxes. You said you, said t- you, So essentially you're saying you should uh, not tax the things that you're most afraid of losing.
0: Yeah, I, I think basically—I mean, there's an idea—this uh, is, you know, kind of a mathematician back in the 20s, Frank Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of say he wanted to say, based upon, you know, marginal utility theories, what are the best taxes, and that was kind of a problem that says, I'm going to solve it. And he you, you wrote some idea, and it's called Ramsey pricing to this day. And the overall idea is, like, imagine if you had, like, no taxes, and here's the economy, here's what everyone's producing and all that. Uh, and let's just say you're going to tax it and basically change it based on how you tax it. Because when you tax stuff, it changes what's produced. What should you aim for? And his conclusion, based upon marginal utility theories, you know, take it or leave it, but the overall conclusion makes sense, which is the taxes you should apply – should lead to basically a loss in production across the board, equally across everything, everything you should produce a little less of everything as a whole. And, uh, that should be the taxes you make. If you say, let's put a lot of taxes on, you know, cars or something, and we have a lot less cars. Yeah. I mean, we would just say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it in that mind, it's not good if the utilities people want this many cars because, yeah, it's, you should actually try to minimize the overall loss to everything. So his overall thing is try to put the most taxes on things that have you know, a, a high inelasticity, that aren't very elastic. Uh, so if it's something that, hey, if they raise the price, you're going to stop buying it. Don't tax that. Tax something where if they raise the price, you're still going still to buy it. Uh, and that's that's been an argument over the years for why a land tax makes sense is because when you consume land, you know, you're not going to produce less of it. The land's still going to be there. And that's, I guess, one reason why in a, I guess, Ramsey pricing sense, uh, if you tax the urban land of your cities, it's going to continue to be present and productive whether or not you tax it. If you tax downtown Manhattan, you know, land values and thereby basically real estate, uh, yeah, it's unlikely Manhattan will get up and move. So what about, like, income tax, though? Well I mean that's the that's the whole uh, you know laugh or curve argument of you know at a certain level, if you tax income more, people will work less. Uh, I mean, I think that people who are you know certainly you know Reagan when he first proposed this and everything were like way too bullish on low this means if we cut income taxes, we're gonna help the economy for free. I, I mean, I don't think that's I don't think it's the case, but it's true at least theoretically at a level that if you take away all your income through a tax, you're gonna say, hey, this maybe I'll work a little less. I mean, I think that this is certainly hurt. By the way, there isn't a lot of flexibility. It's not like you say, "Oh, I'm going to work twenty hours a week." That's just not how the economy works, right? And then, what about just taxing wealth? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, it's you can say either people are going to stop getting wealth, uh, and I think people can talk about the kind of you know ease of doing it. It's hard to kind of say, "Hey, all kind of wealth, make an inventory of everything you own, and let's let's tax it." That's historically been a hard part about like a overall wealth tax. I think it makes a lot of sense from an economic perspective. Uh I think you talk about a land tax as part of a wealth tax. It's a certain amount of wealth you consume, is the land you have. And that is harder to hide than other taxes. You can't really hide your land you have. But yeah, I mean it's I that's mean, Piketty was way for a you know, an overall wealth tax. I think it's I mean, from an economic perspective, it certainly has uh you know, an efficient outcome.
1: Well, Piketty has that uh, R is greater than G, sort of equation, right, the, or inequality.
0: Well, I'm which is a f- formulation of the kind of classic Marxist idea of you have when when the return to capital just grows and grows and grows, it's going to basically outpace whatever comes to the workers. Uh, you know, people, you know, Henry George and so on, Ricardo, Adam Smith would say that the major argument to this is the return to capital is the return to capital and land in all this and uh, yeah we we did we did an
1: episode earlier about So is that actually true though? Is it, I mean if you have your money in uh, I don't know the bond market you know and you're getting whatever return you get on that Yeah. I mean is that really tied to land?
0: Well, what is a... Like a
1: Unless you're is, saying that the government, you know... who
0: has, Who is issuing the bond and why? I mean, here's the yeah. thing. you are talking about Hartford issuing bonds. Let's get back to Connecticut while we can.
1: Right. So Hartford's... uh it sounds like
0: they're issuing bonds and... Bonds have been... And they're getting, uh, you know... Downgraded to junk status. Junk status. They're raising their rates up to 6% on their bonds. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say... You could say a bond is what a city can can issue on its own credit. You know, this is basically how much do you have credit in in the city of Hartford, uh, and we can issue bonds on that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, people don't have a lot of credit in Hartford based upon that.
1: Yeah, it ugh. it almost that that makes it uh, it's it it almost makes it like impossible to get out of that kind of a situation then, right? Because like you can't even borrow because no one wants to.
0: Well, eventually a city can declare bankruptcy. And that's the whole idea. You're talking about like a person. What can you borrow on your person? It's kind of the idea, this is my personal credit. I'll make it good for you in the future. And if you say, hey, and I can just, you know, declare bankruptcy later, uh, there are certain reasons you shouldn't do that, which is I think if you seem like you're going to declare bankruptcy, people won't offer you loans. And if a city doesn't want to declare bankruptcy, uh, or basically if they want to get credit, they can't seem like they're going to, you know, declare, you know, declare bankruptcy. I later. mean,
1: Hartford's talking about declaring bankruptcy. Maybe. Yeah, they're thinking about it.
0: I mean, you talk about like the federal level. I mean, that was a big thing before the election. Trump was saying, you know, it doesn't matter how much we borrow because we can always print more money.
1: And, so, on the national level, that's true, right?
0: Well, I mean, they have they have the ability to print money, so it's true, but it still dilutes the credit of the United States. When, this, when it's like, hey, we're a place that we just print a lot
1: of money whenever we need it. Okay. I mean, but... So, if we... I mean, there's more that goes into the, you know, w- the way people, I guess, calculate, if you want to use that word, the credit worthiness of the United States. This is more than just how much money we're printing, right? It, you know how strong is the economy? Is there growth? Is well,
0: I mean, it, it basically means it, it comes down to barter at a very you know high level. It says at a certain level, what do other countries get, and when we trade, you know, back and forth. And if the idea is, hey, you know, lend us some stuff, then later they don't get a lot for the return. Uh, that's what they care about. They care about what comes in and comes out. I mean, it's, it's it's very complicated at a very high level, but at a certain level, you know, everything is. I would, but eventually, I, goes down to just
1: simple barter and trade. But I was I would say the the situation for Hartford's um, municipal bonds is quite different from like a T bill.
0: Well, I mean, the idea is basically the city is highly in debt, and but the
1: city cannot print its own currency. No, it know? can't. Yeah. No, it can't. It, it can. So it's a little different from the United States.
0: I mean, here's the question. Hartford has seven hundred million dollars in debt. Hmm. how How did it rack up this kind of debt?
1: Like how did that happen? That seems like an insane amount of money. I think uh, I think part of that was like pensions, uh, like pension obligations and um...
0: which kind of is a form of generational wealth transfer, which means a previous generation says, "Hey, let's pay you our pensions, and future generations will pay for it. It's an old story, which is one of those more things. When a population shrinks, it's really hard to make your bills balance. Yes. <laughs> so just as long as you have perpetual growth, everything will work out. And if you don't, uh, not so much. Uh, but just talking about, like, all cities, I'm not sure this would apply to Hartford. I think this is a, a, a you know, pretty funny anecdote. Uh, this was William H. Seward, Secretary of State under Lincoln, uh, and, uh, and also another uh, like a representative of New York City. Uh, And Seward said to the New York City, uh, I guess, representative, Mr. Green, here is something which you can comprehend, but I confess I cannot. Here is a great corporation which has vastly more property and resources in the way of real estate, streets, franchises, docks and wharves, buildings, rents, licenses, powers and privileges, than any other corporation could possibly have. And yet it cannot pay its own expenses. It has to ask the individual taxpayer to go down in his pockets and take out his personal earnings for a yearly contribution in order to keep this gigantic corporation on its feet. Why should not the city of New York pay its own expenses? Why should the individual tax- taxpayer be called upon at all?
1: And th- that is the question. So sorry, sorry. So what is he saying? He's saying he's the saying city that, should just borrow.
0: No, he's saying, he's saying like if you had a corporation and the corporation had on its books, I own New York City. <laughs> I own all the land in New York City. I own the wharves, the docks, everything in New York City. It's mine. Is that is that likely to make money, or is it likely to to not make everything balance? And the answer is like that'd be a dream to have that on your books. But historically, a place like New York City goes through ideas where it, it just can't pay for itself. And New York City is you know a city that is certainly more robust than Hartford, but you, but, but New York City doesn't own the land in New York City. Is that what you're saying? It in so far as if you don't pay your property tax, what happens to it? I mean, they effectively own the land in New York City in a certain sense. Okay, yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's the idea. If you kind of just consider if you actually were able to capture the value of what the city really effectively owns, which it owns itself to an extent, this is the idea that, you know, a city can be treated the first approximation like a firm. And, you know, New York City, there's really no reason it shouldn't be able to invest in some infrastructure. Because you know it, it it should be a pretty robust corporation in that sense. You could say a city like Harvard right now, which makes me worry a bit more. This is a city that isn't really that much in demand. No one really loves it that much. It sounds like it's valued at 180 million in uh, in real estate downtown, or at least land values downtown. Uh, and it has 700 million in debt. So that that's a that's that doesn't seem like a great corporation. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I mean, yeah. It's that's I guess that's is you think it's a valid way to kind of look at a city that way? This is what we have and it's kind of crazy that this is not how cities tend to pay for themselves. They don't pay for themselves and let's look at our assets and let's just rent this out to people. Instead, they tend to kind of sell off their most valuable assets in perpetuity and then kind of tax people, you know, on their economy within the city, which is really what makes the city work. It's 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 a it's a weird way of financing it. It's very strange. Uh, That they, you know, that a city in a steady state tends to work this way. And it's
1: not really a shock that the finances tend not to, not to balance. So you're saying the way they should fund themselves is simply on uh, kind of rent? On its permanent, yeah. Rent on its permanent natural
0: assets. That's, it's, it's not going away. They will continue to have this. Um, and and second is yeah it would it would only help
1: uh, you know uh, help the economy flourish. So you're mayor of Hartford. What do you do right now?
0: I'm the mayor of Hartford. Uh, it's actually interesting. Uh, we're going to do an arc, uh, episode later. The mayor of Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, was in a similar position,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and they did some interesting th- things and, and and bad things too. But what he tried to do uh, and this is a long story. I won't get into it here. Uh, but by hook and by crook, he tried to basically make the city robust and work. He wanted the downtown people would want to live in. And he took, uh, he took a city that had uh, a lot of vacancies. It was just a declining, failing city. And he actually basically reduced the uh, vacancy rate and made it to actually uh, a city that was considered very livable. He did a lot of debt financing to make this happen. Uh, he actually implemented a, a full land value tax, and he, which he says helped uh, immensely in in the downtown area. Uh, he did a lot of capital investment. He treated like a firm. He treated like a firm, and he was swinging for the fences. He got as much VC funding as he could in a way, and basically put in the company and says, "Hey, we're going to either make this work or run out of money." Uh, and in
1: in the end, uh, maybe they borrowed too much <laughs> on things that didn't. Yeah, make I was going to say, how's how's that, I and mean, what what are their... Uh, credit ratings like,
0: uh, not not great, but they in the end they have a city that works. I mean, I guess the question is, will they be forced to pay their debts, or can they, you know declare bankruptcy on it? That's the question. Because
1: I guess if you're a city and you say I'm gonna, yeah, when t- you say it's a city that works, what do you mean? Are people moving in? Or, or yeah, yeah, actually it was, it was, yeah,
0: it was, it was. I think it's you know kind of been a, a minor success as a city that kind of. But this is not about Harrisburg. We'll talking about that later. Uh, but I think the idea is why shouldn't you debt finance a city if you can declare bankruptcy later because people won't lend it to you? I, I don't know how often they're going to actually come back and say.
1: I don't, you, think, I don't think being in bankruptcy does good things for the people in that city. I think there's a lot of pain that's felt when a city has to go through. That I, it's, sort of it's an interesting question. I'd like process. to know
0: the real nuts and bolts of this. There's a lot of people who know more than I do. It just seems to me that if you could. Make your city work, and then, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you you can't take away. It's like you pay for surgery in debt. You can't like they're not gonna take your kidney back. If you need to survive, maybe you just need to do what it takes. I don't know, or maybe a city can't survive. I don't know. But it sounds like they spent their debt financing on just paying for pensions, uh, which that's gone now. That's paying for old labor. Well,
1: healthcare costs have been high, I think too.
0: Yeah, but I mean, basically, there—that's the cost of underpaid labor from decades ago, which is okay. That's uh, not really helping people out now. Uh, but okay, so they are talking about shoring up the downtown area, trying to get less vacant lots downtown through a uh, land value tax of sorts. This is one of the things that Hartford is looking at, and there's been blowback, uh, certainly by the parking lot holders of, of downtown Hartford.
1: Yeah. Do you have any, any thoughts for your reading of these articles? I, I mean, one of the one of the sort of arguments against it kind of made sense, which was, all right, you're gonna you're gonna tax the parking lots so that people are encouraged to, you know, develop on on the parking lot area, um, but, or that doesn't necessarily guarantee that that development is going to be stuff that's good for the city.
0: Why I think what it would say is a, if you have land that has a certain value, uh, it should be developed on in relation to the value it's held. I mean, yeah, it may make a bad investment. Maybe they'll put the wrong kind of stuff. But people who say, I'm going to take a chance on and build something there, they're going to. It's, it seems hard to say that's going to be better for the
1: city to have a vacant parking lot or a vacant lot. Well, it depends, right? Who knows? like. All you, by by having that land value tax all you're doing is incentivize people people to build stuff on it. Right? I mean, you're you're
0: saying people who value it should use it and not people who don't want to use it would just hold on to it. That's the general argument. That if you're going to use it, you know, if you're going to have it use it. And a parking lot is not a good use. I mean, it's it's uh, it does, yeah. I mean, I'd say basically yes. It's not a very good use. I mean, it is. It's a use you might have, but for example, why is it just a simple ground level parking lot? If there's a need for parking, why shouldn't you invest more and build a ten story parking lot, for instance? Wouldn't that make you maybe, more money? Maybe
1: there's not that much need for uh, parking.
0: Well, I mean, it's it, in general, density has a certain amount of benefit in a downtown area. It seems that when people are holding on to a lot just because they're looking for the right project which may or not exist i think it's kind of you know there's one lot uh cheryl chase uh general counsel at hartford based chase enterprises uh they own a lot uh it's next to two downtown skyscrapers so it seems like this is an area that has a lot of
1: value you would think maybe it's not like how how much of that how much of those skyscrapers is currently vacant
0: that's an interesting question um but she says there's a future when the project will absolutely make sense. Uh, they've owned a parking lot that happened since a Parkview Hilton was demolished in 1990. So they've been holding onto a lot for 27 years, and they've yet to find the right time for it, which seems to maybe imply the holding cost has been artificially low, that nothing good has been, come up for it in
1: 27 years. But, I mean, so this Chase, uh, this lady Chase, also makes the argument, right, that you know it doesn't make sense to force property owners to build when there isn't enough demand to fill the space. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look very large picture,
0: you put land value tax on a city, it tends to have it fill the shape what people want in it. And I think if you put it on a place like San Francisco, you would see a lot more demand for more dense, tall structures throughout the city. You'd probably see it become a lot more like Hong Kong in a lot of ways because there's a lot of demand. Uh, that's kind of what its shape would be. If you put it on a Hartford, you might see it just kind of disappear because there's not much demand. I think you would. I think what you what would s- disappear
1: the the land value tax would disappear. What do you, I think oh, I think the city the city fo- would disappear. The
0: city footprint would start to shrink down to kind uh. of. Like, I, I think it, it it lets you know what the demand is, and it helps you build a city in in relation oh, to how God, that's
1: down. a that's an awfully disruptive well, process I mean, though.
0: I mean, I guess you look at, like, people living in rural areas, and a lot of these places they lived in just disappeared. There's a population that used to live in these, you know, kind of rural areas, and those those populations aren't there anymore, and it wasn't really that disruptive. And I guess when you talk about when cities shrink, why is it disruptive and could it be less disruptive? And I think if there is one way to kind of sell a land value tax to a declining city, it would be the idea that it would shrink kind of sanely you look at a place like detroit it has so much you know broken things and its, it's sprawling areas just a lot of vacant buildings just intense blight but it's downtown core is pretty nice uh it's downtown core is functional there's not a lot of vacancies uh and if detroit basically just kind of shrunk down to its downtown core and the rest just kind of yeah, what would, would that be less disruptive than all the vacancies and blooded areas and I think that's kind of what it would try to do.
1: So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a so damping factor. So here's my question. Yeah. is Doesn't this kind of just set up... So one of the big things that you land value taxers, uh, you Georgists, uh, don't like is, you know, the this sort of feudal uh, model or just someone who gets to the land first, gets to hold on to it and, uh, you know, charge people rent forever. Um, imagine you do this in Hartford now, Right. And you want to shrink the cities to to its core, so you're gonna jack up land value taxes all over all over uh, all over the city, and then uh, basically people aren't gonna be able to afford it, and buildings will come down, and you, you know it'll just be the core, uh, and it, it'll be a nice little core small city. What happens when suddenly 20 years from now Hartford becomes cool again for whatever reason? I mean, the people who will own that land, the land that's now just outside the core. I mean, weren't they just the people who were rich enough today to buy it, hold on to it, and pay the high land value tax?
0: Well, the the idea is when you try to sell it, it's going to kind of move down to to its strong core idea. Like you have this core of Hartford, it works. But it's not like a lot of people are making money in the core. You actually would have a very sane financing system where the downtown core... The money would flow back into maintaining the core, and actually, if you say, "Oh, it works," hey, look at Hartford. It's a kind of slim little city that has a you know, downtown that works. You know, maybe it will start to grow a bit more. And when it grows, it would actually have a virtuous cycle of when it grows, you would see this money go back into infrastructure, and then you would see basically, you know, instead of a city that grows and has demand and demand like San Francisco, so much demand, but you can't even have a you know subway that works you would have, you know, a downtown area that uh, would actually be able to, you know, pay for the infrastructure to make it uh, more attractive.
1: Okay, yeah, and this goes to my other, I guess, main sort of quibble with the land value taxers, which is um, this idea of assessment. Uh, well, people people do assessment now.
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think here, historically, places that have had, um, you know, land value tax, places place like Pittsburgh, for instance, it's, people have said Pittsburgh ran a land value tax, kind of a split rate tax, it was a marginal tax, uh, between like the 70s and around 2000. Uh, they say compared to other Rust Belt cities, that the same kind of decline uh pittsburgh actually stayed kind of strong in its downtown core the downtown pittsburgh had less vacancies than other comparable cities it seemed like it held held its its act a bit better and you could probably chalk that up to an extent to the land value tax it had uh but they still got rid of it in 2000 and why because the property tax and this is a form of it uh it's not very popular and people are going to quibble about assessments I mean, I think that assessments could tend to be a lot more, uh, kind of objective. I mean, how how
1: how do you make that fair? Because I think that's that's going to be the one of the main, uh, I guess, sources of pushback. In fact, this this uh, report you sent me from uh, the Pew Charitable Trusts quotes one of these. um, I don't know if it's a landowner or just the CEO of some group. And he's saying, look, you have to estimate the value of the land and the value of the improvements separately if you're going to do this, right? Because in in a lot of these proposals, the land is taxed at one rate, and then the development upon the land is taxed at a different rate, uh, usually at a lower rate. Um, Actually, always at a lower rate. I guess that's the only way it would make sense. But he says, you have to estimate the value of the land and the value of the improvements of the land separately. Places have a hard enough time estimating the value of the land and property together. If you look at your assessments
0: now, they actually, at least most places, they actually have two different values. At least in California, they have two values. They list your land, they list your improvements. Uh, so, I mean, really all they do is not list the improvements. In a certain sense, this is actually kind of easier because it really is what changes over time in aggregate. I think when you look at kind of aggregation over pl- pl- times, you should be able to do a pretty good job. I mean, I think, look at a place like Zillow online, they do a job at effectively assessing every spot in a city and it works out pretty okay. I mean, I think I'm not, I, I think they probably use more sophisticated methods. There has been. Ta- so we
1: leave it to machine learning.
0: I mean, I, I, I think that probably could be part of it. Uh, when you have humans in it, humans are, are, are corruptible. I think there's oh, been yeah. Supreme court cases. Here's a, a, a classic way it goes wrong. Uh, the assessor assesses the rich neighborhoods less the poor neighborhoods more doesn't that make sense the rich neighborhoods have power and they and so you need to make sure there's objective ways that doesn't happen because one that's that's a crime when that happens that mm-hmm. is uh so i i historically speaking uh this has always been the biggest challenge of something like this i'm not here to say that part is easy um i would just say that i think that it is doable with the right kind of uh, determination, and the, uh, and it really could do a lot to kind of help our cities have sane, sustainable financing. Even machine learning
1: might might just might not work because you would just take the data from previous assessments which would have embedded in it the biases and the corruption.
0: Well, I think ideally you'd be training it on new kind of land sales records which would reveal a lot of what actual market demand are in places. It's hard. It's hard, but I think it... I, I personally would say, I think, to make urban financing work, it's 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 necessary. Uh, is this boring, though? Is the idea of, like, urban financing uh, saying, like, what is something... You mean, care- like,
1: is the, is having a show about Henry George boring?
0: Well, Yeah. I mean, like, one is, well, who cares if I'm bored doing it? But in general, is this something people say, like, hey, this is one of the things I should care about is urban financing?
1: No, no, no. No, because people, no, people don't care about that. People care about, yeah. you know, what... What's happening to me and my my friends and my family and my pocketbook?
0: And, but I think the, the thing that I think matters a lot is I think a lot of the ways you build your neighborhoods and finance your neighborhoods influences the quality of life and how they're lived. And I think people don't really realize how important urban financing is. And it's a really boring thing that affects them an awful lot.
1: And I think that's my pitch on people saying... Wow, this is boring as hell, but it, it matters. And so, the Georgia solution to urban financing is just do it through land value tax.
0: I, mean, I think it's 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 a way. If you... is there is there a place for for debt? Uh, so that's a question. I mean, I think you could say that maybe governments shouldn't be able to have debt on certainly consuming. If you say like you build an infrastructure project and you put debt on it, uh, this is called uh, self liquidating debt. I think if you say we should have debt. On government pensions now, so we can pay people less and kind of backload their That that's not as good, but yeah, I mean, there's I think uh, there's the right kind of debt and the wrong kind of debt. Consuming debt versus uh, basically investment into your into your place. But maybe you could don't even need to borrow to have the right kind of investment if you do it right. Hmm. Well, so that's the pitch. So I think we're wrapping up. Uh,
1: Connecticut has this. Has this been uh, an interesting talk about Connecticut? I I don't really have. Uh, I was hoping would to you, get a solution would for you, how to save Connecticut.
0: Would you move back to
1: Connecticut? I'd. Uh, I mean, it it would it would depend. It, I, I'd I'd have to get a pretty damn nice uh, sort of job. Yeah. So it's job market's one big thing. Yeah. And it's not that that's impossible. It's not like there's no jobs in Connecticut. There's still... The weather. What about the weather? I don't mind the weather. Okay. Well, I would. Yeah. W- really? You're from...
0: Yeah, and I moved away. Uh, I'd rather live in the Southwest or something. I freaking hate...
1: Uh... Yeah. I mean, so a bunch of old people are leaving places like Connecticut. They're moving to places like Texas and, you know, Arizona and yep. Florida. But, I mean, I know, they're just weak. Sure. So, uh, any more information on New Haven Pizza? I I I know there's like I think there's like three places that you're supposed to go when you go to New Haven, and I don't know. I can't remember a single one of their names, which makes me a terrible. If you let it me makes get, me a terrible. I n- was nutmegger. really hoping to learn a lot from this. Yeah, th- I I have I've seen some cool YouTube clips. Okay. So I think that if for those who are interested, uh, YouTube is a great resource. That's a real hot tip here at Kadar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, this is the Henry George program. Uh, for more information on New Haven Pizza, check out YouTube. Uh, more information, previous episodes on this program, see thecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford.